Well, if I would have uh, known we were going to have a pirate ship behind me, I either would have started a sermon series on Jonah or worn an eye patch this morning. And so, uh, <clears throat> who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Hey, I hope that you have. I hope that you have all uh, signed up to help with Vacation Bible School in some uh, form or fashion. It's a wonderful opportunity for us to reach into our community. Um, this morning, if uh, if we didn't have a full stage already. We, um, if you go in our basement, John Bennett's been helping us clean stuff out. We've got stuff all over the place. But we have doors that we don't use anymore, kind of stuffed in the basement of the church office. And we were going to build a little door frame and just have a door kind of standing up here as an, as an object lesson for what we're going to talk about this morning, kind of uh, discussing the Gospel of Matthew. You can see we've already kind of set the table. We have the opportunity uh, and the privilege to participate in the Lord's Supper today. But before we do that... I want to take just a few minutes to talk to you from God's Word about how do, we, how do we set our minds to be able to come to the table appropriately? How do, we, how do we worship Christ rightly instead of it just being kind of a dead tradition? What I wanted to do with the door is I wanted you for just a second to picture in your mind that the Gospel of Matthew was a very big house. And in this very big house, there's a long hallway with multiple doors. And each door leads to a different set of stories about Jesus. So you, you go down this hallway and you go in the first door to the right. And that may be um, the birth story of Jesus, where uh, we talk about his genealogies and how you have all of these interesting people from da- Abraham and David to uh, Rahab and Ruth that all play a part of his genealogy. And maybe you, you come back out and you shut that door and you come down here and you go in this door and it's the story about how Jesus inaugurates his ministry. And as he uh, uh, begins publicly his ministry, it starts with the temptation where he is face to face with the devil himself who is trying to give him a shortcut to glory. It just involves Jesus bowing down to Satan and being given the privilege to rule over the world. This morning, as we come to a new door, in some ways, it's one of the most significant doors in the Gospel of Matthew, because we don't just come to another room, we come to a door that is a complete and total turning point in Matthew's Gospel. For 20 chapters, we have seen all of Jesus' life, again, from his birth to his, in, his in, inauguration to his teaching ministry, and we've traveled with him to a variety of places, from Bethlehem, where he was born, to Egypt, to where he fled from Herod's evil edict to kill all of the uh, children under two. We've seen him go from Egypt to Nazareth, from Nazareth to Galilee. It seems like we have been to countless towns and villages as we have traveled with this narration of Jesus. And he, he has, apparently, walked everywhere in the Holy Lands, at least twice, because he's a traveling man. But right here in Matthew chapter 21 begins the record of Jesus' last eight days. And so I want, I want to remind you here that Jesus was crucified. We believe he would have been 32 or 33 years old. And so the first 20 chapters of Matthew's gospel cover his first 31 or 32 years. And then the remaining eight chapters of Matthew's gospel all deal with the last eight days of his life. It is almost like the, um, the old little 35-millimeter film has been in fast-forward all the way up to this point. And when we get to Jesus' last week, it goes into slow motion. And in these last eight days, he enters into the holy city. 
He cleanses the temple. He challenges the leaders. He institutes the Lord's Supper. He prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is arrested. He is tried. He is crucified. And he is resurrected. And this last week is the crowning point of Jesus' work, so much so that it takes up an inordinate amount of space in the Gospels. For Luke, fully 20% of Luke's Gospel account deals with the last week of Jesus' life. 25% of Matthew deals with the last week of Jesus' life. 33% of Mark deals with the last week of Jesus' life. Fully 50% of John's Gospel deals with the last week of Jesus' life. And so this morning, we're going to look at the first 11 verses of Matthew chapter 21. And so I invite you with your uh, own Bible or your own app, uh, if you need to use the Pew Bible in front of you, it'll be page 697. And here's the thing that's interesting. As we work our way through our uh, kind of listening guide this morning, in Matthew's gospel, this is the very first time Jesus has ever entered the city of Jerusalem. It's almost like it has been taboo, that like he could not go there because the hostility and the opposition would be too extreme. And as Jesus comes in, he is celebrated by the crowds at his, uh, what we've called the triumphal entry. And this serves as a kind of coronation for King Jesus. He is received by his people. Now, when we talk about the word coronation, um, that's a weird word for us as Americans because we've never had a king. The last king we had, we fired. And... Um, uh, we didn't like him too much. And so when we talk about coronation, we don't understand that because we don't, uh, we inaugurate, but we don't coronate. And so uh, I did a little bit of his historical research and I found this on the internet so you know that it's true. When Queen, when Queen Victoria was coronated, she was adorned with an absolutely beautiful crown that was remarkable because of the amazing giant rubies and sapphires that surrounded it. But as giant as those rubies and sapphires were, they were uh, but a pittance to the 309-carat diamond that made up the centerpiece of that headpiece. 309. Um, ladies, when your husband proposed to you, he gave you that ring. Anybody come close to 309? Besides Marcy, come close to a 309-carat <laughs> diamond. Hey, listen, 25 cents at a Walmart little candy machine. It'll get you a lot. Um, <clears throat> listen, it doesn't stop there because as a ruler, she was giving a scepter that kind of epitomized authority. And at the top of her scepter, listen to this, was a 516-carat diamond cut from the Star of Africa. Color, cut, clarity, and cost. Wow, that's expensive. And so when we talk about Matthew 21 being a type of coronation, Jesus certainly is a king. But the coronation that he experiences is vastly different than most rulers because Jesus is a vastly different kind of guy. So we're going to read here in Matthew 21, 1 through 11. Follow along with me in your copy of God's Word. When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mountain of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples telling them, Go into the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks anything to you, you should, say to the Lord, you should say that the Lord needs them, and immediately he will send them. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell, daughter Zion, look, your king is coming to you, gentle, and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt, then they laid their robes on them, and he sat on them. 
A very large crowd spread their robes on the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on, <clears throat> spreading them on the road. And then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed kept shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! He who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one! Hosanna in the highest heaven! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was shaken, saying, Who is this? And the crowds kept saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Would you pray with me, please? Father, my heart's desire is not for us to recite a story that is quaint and maybe illustrative of some life principle like Aesop's fable, but that you will allow us to hear it as the very word of God itself. So I ask that you empower my weak speech to be uh, worthy of talking about this great subject matter that we have here before us. Lord, we have heard this story before. Maybe when we were kids, we even acted it out. Help us not to think childishly about such an important thing as your kingship over us. You are a good God and a great king. And we count it a privilege to hear from your word and to desire to obey you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Three uh, relatively quick thoughts about who Jesus is from this passage. The first is that Jesus is the unequaled king. He is not equal to anyone else. He is the unequaled king. And we see this in this, this passage in a number of ways. One of the things that I think is fascinating about this, two sub-points under this, the first of which is that it becomes very clear in this passage that Jesus is uh, indisputably in charge. Je- no one is compelling Jesus to go to Jerusalem. He has told his disciples, disciples three times already that when they get to Jerusalem, he will be betrayed, <clears throat> he will be tried, and he will be killed. But here he is in charge. And I think in our culture sometimes, we like to think of Jesus as a 1970s hippie and some kind of mamby-pamby, wishy-washy, uh, effeminate fellow. And that's not what we have here. Rather, we have a picture of Jesus like a general in charge of his troops, issuing orders and making sure that all of the details for this important event are just as they need to be. Now, if you're familiar with the scriptures at all, you will know that this is a turn of um, significance because Jesus up to this point has been a rather uneasy public figure. Now, granted, he is the Son of God, but he, he, has, he has known that that claim will not be well received. And so if you flip back in your Bibles, you don't need to, but I'll give you the reference to Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 through 31 specifically. Jesus heals two men, and then he warns them not to say anything because he knew that uh, the Jewish religious leaders were not ready to receive him. But yet when he gets here and he is entering into Jerusalem for the first time in a most public fashion. There is no such warning to quietness or to secrecy now. Additionally, by doing things as publicly the way that he is doing them, he is forcing the Jewish Sanhedrin, which is basically the Jewish Supreme Court, he is advancing their timetable. They don't like him, and when Jesus had healed Lazarus, they already decided, this, which really, this really stinks for Lazarus, Jesus just resurrected him, and the Sanhedrin decides to kill Lazarus. I'm like, Sanhedrin, I think if Jesus rose him, raised him from the dead and you decide to kill him, that's probably not the best plan. 
Uh, and poor Lazarus, he's got to die again anyways. But they decide that they're going to kill Jesus too. And when Jesus enters in the way that he does, he forces their hand and causes them to advance their time schedule of opposition. The public demonstration that his triumphal entry in uh, rates the ire of the religious leaders to such a point that we just know at the end of chapter 21, verse 11, that something is going to happen and it is going to happen soon. Now, it's not a big deal to claim that Jesus is a king. It's a big deal to claim that he's an unequaled king, that he is uh, in a category of one all by himself. Because Israel was familiar with having kings. As a matter of fact, they had a long line of kings that were, in essence, a long line of losers. The political process was as terrible in ancient Israel as it is in America. And so as you are praying about who you need to hold your nose Uh, vote for and then come home and bathe to clean yourself of don't think don't think that our political uh problems are anything new Uh, when we when we look to politics as a savior we will follow the same long line of losers that israel did but jesus is different because he is divine He's God, and he claims to be. And there are all kinds of people today, perhaps even uh, members of this church, who like Jesus as a teacher of cute stories, and they think he's just an all-around good guy. Let's vote for Jesus for deacon. But that's not what he claims to be. He claims to be God. And if he claims to be God, he's either a looney tune or he's a maliciously bad fellow. And so he, he is claiming to be divine. And we see this in a couple ways. In verses 2 and 3, he gives his disciples explicit directions. Uh, They've never been to Jerusalem before. And granted, there is some uh, advanced preparation that is taking place. But Jesus says, hey, there's going to be things that happen. If people confront you, say this, and it's all going to work out. In every detail, down to the the most minute piece of fact, happens exactly as he says. Even to the point of finding a mama donkey and her baby. As Jesus enters into Jerusalem, he receives worship from the crowd, and he doesn't refuse it. Let me give you a hint. If anybody tries to worship you, don't let them. It would be blasphemous for you to do this. And so Jesus is very clearly not a good guy if he receives worship without saying, hey, don't worship me. This happens to Paul in his missionary journeys. They try to worship Paul, and he says, hey, I'm I'm not God. I'm just an ambassador. I'm just one of his servants. And so by receiving worship, Jesus is very formally making a break with Judaism anymore, with Judaism now. And he's saying, uh, this is who I am. Deal with it. The people respond by singing in worship, calling him the son of David, the blessed one or the Messiah, and singing hosannas to him. And Jesus is praised by the populace, but the ruling class of leaders will most indisputably reject him because they will kill him. Not a whole lot of conjecture there. They don't like him. So here's a question for you. If Jesus walked everywhere, which we kind of joked, he kind of walked everywhere in the Holy Lands at least twice. If Jesus walked everywhere, then what is all this donkey business? You know, there's some donkey business going on in this passage. What is it all about? You see, the disciples... um, do exactly what he said and don't really realize what they're doing because this entire episode is important because not only is Jesus the unequaled king, but he is the expected king. 
He is the expected king. As the disciples complete their task, their, the thing that they are told to do, they fail to realize that by doing this, they're helping Jesus to enter Jerusalem in a way that explicitly fulfills a 500-year-old prophecy from Zechariah. Amazing, uh, amazing story of amazing stories. The donkey happens to be right where Jesus said it would be. Now, when we look at this uh, prophecy that is uh, uh, kind of said what to expect of Christ, Matthew 21, verse 5, is almost a direct quotation from Zechariah 9.9. And it's important to note that as strategic as Jesus was in fulfilling this prophecy, it points to something that's even just a tad bit more important about who Jesus is, because I want you to see this. On the screen here, you can see uh, Zechariah 9.9, the text in the Holman Christian Standard Translation, and the same text in the Holman Christian Standard Translation of Matthew 21.5. And so beyond noting that Jesus is, the, Jesus is doing this and fulfilling explicitly the prophecy that is prophesied about him, there's a really important difference, because Matthew does something that none of us should ever do. He takes something out of Scripture for a teaching point. And so you can see the, um, the, uh, the passages are almost completely, exactly parallel. See, your king is coming to you. Look, your king is coming to you. But then that second phrase, righteous and victorious. Here's why people ultimately refused Jesus, is they wanted a new ruler. They didn't want his president, who they had as president. They didn't want the Sanhedrin. They wanted a victorious ruler. Christ didn't come to be the victorious conquering king the first time. That's what his second coming is about. And so Matthew leaves out the part about him being righteous and victorious and emphasizes instead his humility, his gentleness. Look, your king is coming to you with no note of victory. Gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. What does this teach us when we look at what is left out? Jesus is high, but he is humble. Listen, we could stop right there, and there's a lesson for all of us. How many of you like being treated humbly? If I'm going to be humble, I want to be humble on my own terms. That's not very humble. Jesus, even though he was worthy of worship, came with great humility because of our third and final point about Jesus, that Jesus is the uncontentious king. That's a big word, lots of syllables, but he didn't come with a mean spirit. He came to be gentle. He came to be humble. And even his, the way that he enters Jerusalem, even though attended with great fanfare and celebration, comes humbly because the animal in which he enters the holy city of Jerusalem is not associated with the rigors of war. This is not a great war steed in battle armor with the family crest upon it, but rather an animal associated with hard work and peaceful pursuits. It is a donkey. I find it appropriate that the one who would be the bearer of the world's sins would be the one to come in and enter the city on a beast of burden. It's worth noting also that his mount is a colt. <clears throat> what that means, uh, for those of you that are not farmhands, is that this is a baby donkey, one that has not been ridden before. Okay, now when you hear that, that should raise all kinds of questions because if a 
animal has not been broken in, what's it going to do the first time somebody gets on it? It's not going to like it. You know, the heavier my kids get and they want to ride daddy as a horsey, oh boy, it hurts. You know, I start sagging in the middle here a little bit. And so every time we have ever gone horseback riding, Marcy gets a horse named Buttercup and I get Diablo. You know, and it usually means it's not going to end well. Here's the thing that's amazing. You have this horse that has never been broken in, yet this untamed creature is completely at peace under the authority of the one who is the Prince of Peace. The one who controls all of nature in his hand can ride this unbroken creature like he has been perfectly trained. And this beast of burden, this gentle and humble animal, is how Jesus demonstrates his uncontentious nature. Now, Jesus is contentious by his claims of who he is, but he's not going to over-exacerbate his contentiousness by his manner. He is gentle and he is lowly uh, of opinion related to himself. Another way of saying this is we talk about Jesus being the unequaled king, the expected king, and the uncontentious king, is that Jesus must be the primary king, or he's not. He is primary. He is prophesied. He is peaceful. And so we see very clearly what the scriptures teach about Jesus in this passage. And now we turn to the people who receive him. And Jesus' reception is the most fascinating one. And we must be led to the conclusion that when it comes to Jesus' true identity, that uh, Jesus' true identity was unclear to the people. They were rather perplexed. The Bible uh, talks about the procession. And as the procession moves, more people join in. We're told that as Jesus leaves from Bethphage to head into Jerusalem, he already has a very large crowd with him that is laying down the robes and branches on the road. And then in verse 9, different translations handle this a little bit differently. And don't like the way that the HCSB handles it because the idea of motion is not appropriately communicated. You have a crowd that is following Jesus to Jerusalem and where Jesus picks the donkey up is, is in the, the vicinity of where his friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, lived. And according to John's chronology, right before Jesus enters into uh, Jerusalem triumphantly, he's raised Lazarus from the dead at some undisclosed time before his triumphal entry. So here's what's happening. You raise someone from the dead, you're going to make it into the Jerusalem times. You're going to make it into the Jewish news network. JNN's going to pick it up. And so Jesus has this crowd that is traveling with him to Jerusalem, and in, in, in some way, shape, or form, advanced runners are saying, hey, that guy that raised that guy is coming this way. And people come out from Jerusalem, and then they intersect, and that's where this dynamic worship begins to happen. They had heard about Lazarus' resurrection, and they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, and they went out to meet him. It's important to note also, although our passage does not specify this, that all of these things are happening in the run-up to the celebration of the Feast of the Passover. Uh, normally, Jerusalem's population would swell with Jewish pilgrims coming into the city for that holy observation. A census from 10 years prior to this, so roughly 23 AD, uh, indicated that there were 260,000 260, sacrificial lambs that were uh, slaughtered in roughly 23-22 A.D. Now we know that the, uh, the Old Testament specifically allots one lamb for up to every 10 people. So if 260,000 lambs were slaughtered and one lamb could be up to 10 people, you're talking a 
population swell of over two and a half million people that could have been in Jerusalem. Depending on your chronology, the thing that I find most fascinating is that Jesus could be being celebrated and received into people's hearts at the very same time that the sacrificial lambs were being distributed by the priests to the people. So Jesus is being received into people's hearts as lambs are being received into people's homes because you had to identify with that lamb. You didn't just go pick it and then drop it off at the temple. You picked it up from the temple, you brought it home and lived with it, your kids played with it, and then you took it back to the temple and you slaughtered it. So that people understood that there was a price for moral infractions against a morally perfect God, that death is the penalty for sin, and this is what is happening. And so the people shout to him from Scripture, Psalm 118 specifically, but even as the words, and oh friends, this is a huge warning for us in our worship, Even as the words are departing their lips, they have no idea what they're saying. Let alone no idea what Jesus was about to do for them, even in their ignorance, on the cross. And it's at this point where things get especially muddied, and from my perspective, especially sad. It seems, in in the most faithful way for us to recollect this passage, that um, While Jesus was outside of the city, they sing hosannas to him and they praise him as the son of David and they even call him the blessed one or the Messiah. But as he enters into the city, it says that the entire city was shaken. It it stirred up the city and people asked the very pregnant question, who is this man? And obviously as the day progressed, they start off with son of David Messiah, the one to whom we should sing hosannas. When Jesus didn't do everything, he didn't cause the revolt that they thought that he was going to cause. When he was not the political savior that they thought that he was going to be. They downgraded Jesus from the son of David and Messiah to what's it say in verse 11? Merely another prophet. Yeah, we know what a prophet is. We've had a bunch of them. There are a dime a dozen. Some of them are a little eccentric, eating weird things, dressing weird. This is just another prophet. Son of David, Messiah. Well, no, he didn't do what we expected him to do. So now he's just another prophet. They wanted Jesus on their own terms, but he could not receive them as such. But they were unwilling to come on his terms. Isn't that the conundrum of the day? Listen, if you talk to anyone, even the greatest skeptic in the world, if they acknowledge that there is an existence after this life, no one wants to go to hell. But no one wants to give up their autonomy and recognize another king over their life. We want Jesus on our own terms. And it's not just these people in the first century. It's us as well. People are content to follow Jesus as long as he doesn't mess with their life. As long as he promises health and wealth, Jesus is cool. But the minute he confronts us and he calls us to live for him instead of living for ourselves, we curse him and we turn away. And that happens in churches every day. The problem is we still allow people like that to call themselves Christians. And we wonder why the world thinks we're a bunch of hypocrites. Because we never hold anyone accountable for living out what they say they believe. And the end result of this story is even though this great crowd of people temporarily worshipped him, The Hosanna shouters are just as bad as the Jesus haters. They just probably are referred, they probably hold a different social standing 
among their friends because they worshiped Jesus. But they're no different than the Jesus haters. So our story ends really with a dynamic question. The city is shaken, and the people ask, who is this man? And if it was practical to sit down with every single one of you, I would want to ask you that question. Not to see what you heard in Sunday school when you were a kid, or what you've happened to hear in 40 years of listening to preaching. But what do you believe? Who is this man? Is he some kind of shaman? Some kind of miracle worker? Well, those guys typically turn out to be shams anyways. They're, they're fake. But Jesus has raised his best friend from the dead. And he'd been dead for three days. And nobody can argue against it. How do you have the power to raise a dead friend? Who is this man? Is he a demagogue who's working the crowd? He's kissing babies and shaking hands because he wants to run for political office. No, Jesus didn't come to rule the first time. He came to serve. And he came to pour out his life as a ransom for sinners. Is he simply a guy? Is this like his, um, is this like his uh, American Jerusalem Idol competition? And this is just a guy enjoying his 15 minutes of fame? Well, if you read to how the week ends up, that didn't pan out too well for him. That 15 minutes of fame ended up with him getting killed. Again, it's popular to celebrate Jesus as a great teacher and an all-around good guy. But we're not left with that option. He claimed to be God. And he received the worship that even fickle people gave to him. He taught us that he was God and that his death was the only way to cure us from our sin and to bring us back to the Father. You see, the challenge for us is even from our own lips and from our own hearts, Jesus will be wrongly revered with weak worship. We will always want Jesus on our own terms. So if we truly believe that heaven and hell are in the balance, then we should live like it because we do not truly love him if we do not desire him as our king. And this morning, because as his people, we recognize him as our king. We have the opportunity to take his meal.